Hola, this is Kate Mangona from the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast. When I'm not sharing physician love stories, I'm nerding out with financial residency. Hola, Kate. Thanks for calling it in. And hola to all my friends out there in the financial residency community. As you heard, Kate has an awesome podcast called Medicine, Marriage, and Money. And I think all of you should take a listen because it's a pretty fantastic podcast. Now, thank you so much for being here with me on the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman. And honestly, I love all of you. If you haven't subscribed to the show, Creepy Apple tells us that a little under 20% of you aren't actually subscribed yet to the show. So please do so and learn a ton about personal finance for physicians and how you can feel more confident about your personal finances. If you've been listening for a while, thank you so much again for being here. If I've helped you at all become more confident or just helped you in any way through the show, please consider sharing this podcast with one physician or physician family, just one. And it'll take you like 10 seconds to copy the link of this episode and send that quick text to someone that you know will benefit from this podcast and can check out the show. And hopefully we're going to be able to help them too. Now we have a really fun show planned for you today. We're going to be doing a deep dive into credit cards. We're going to answer a question that came in from our community, which by the way, you can call in any question you want and I'm happy to answer it on air. And you can do that by going to financialresidency.com slash question. And then we're going to have another financial malpractice segment, which has honestly become, I think my favorite new thing to do on the show. So I hope you guys are all enjoying that segment. Now, before we jump into the show, let's hear from today's sponsor, who is Contract Diagnostics, and they're a firm 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, and honestly, most likely a few additional times as well. Now, I love this company. They have helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they're signing, but what the risks are that they're taking with their family. All contracts are reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a super simplified way back to you using custom documentation, compensation data, which by the way is fantastic, and times outside of normal business hours, they're going to make it really easy for you to get your contract reviewed. All the packages are a flat price, which is fantastic again, so you know exactly what you're going to pay for up front. And resident and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. And that is super unique, and I love that feature. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contractdiagnostics. That's C-O-N-T-R-A-C-T-D-I-A-G-N-O-S-T-I-C-S. Or call 888-574-5526. I absolutely love John and his team. They are fantastic. It is who we refer to all the time at Physician Wall Services, as well as on here on the Financial Residency Podcast. So check them out. The link is in the description of this podcast that you're listening to right now. So credit card offers are everywhere. We get them in the mail. We get them in our email. We even get them when we're flying from the flight attendants. Credit card companies have become really successful at marketing new cards, creating new perks, anything that they can do to entice us to sign up for their cards. So with all the cards out there, it honestly gets really quickly overwhelming trying to figure out which one is best for our spending and what we're doing and how we can manage it. Plus, 
it can be a real challenge to quote unquote game the system and earn as many points as you can. Now, some people, I have friends that are extremely successful at doing this. They are true money nerds to every degree, but many people are not successful. And I've actually seen way too often, honestly, to care for admitting on air, but some people actually spend way too much and end up racking up credit card debt instead of just collecting the rewards that they signed up for. And that's why I think it's really important to be careful when it comes to credit cards and credit card bonuses. So there's a few type of cards that are out there. I kind of want to give a general lay of the land and then let's talk about the rewards a little bit. So there's a few type of cards, airline rewards cards, right? These are specific cards that are for specific airlines. I would say usually they're with bigger banks and they have some pretty large rewards. Chase is one of kind of the leaders in this. And sometimes you can transfer or use your miles for other perks, but it's primarily used to pay for your travel on a specific airline. There are cash back cards and just like it sounds, cash back credit cards will give you a percentage of your money back once you have paid off the credit card. The percentage can range anywhere from really one to 6%. However, they usually cap it in certain categories. So typically cash back cards will say, hey, it's a default 1% for any category charge. And then they'll most oftentimes highlight one or two categories and give you an extra percentage point or two, depending on the category. And again, usually there's limits at when they cap those. There are things that are called points cards, and those cards will allow you to earn rewards for merchandise or gas or stay at a particular hotel. The points don't have cash value. And we don't typically hear a lot about these cards because there's just better cards out there. And then speaking of better cards, kind of the creme de la creme, the premium card. And those are usually the gold or the platinum cards that offer super high credit or no credit limits. I think Amex platinum cards or black cards. They have 24-hour concierge services, heck, even a personal assistant, depending on how much you spend using that credit card. Those are the ones that have the exclusive airline lounges. And if you tend to travel around the world, let's call it pre-COVID, that you would be able to take advantage of a bunch of travel benefits. So those are really kind of the four main groups of cards that are out there. Now, let's get in a little bit of the nitty gritty and nerd out on how credit card companies make money because they're providing you guys and me these rewards for using their cards. But how can they provide the rewards? and still stay afloat. Well, there's a lot of ways that they are making money. Each of those types of credit cards offer some type of reward, right? But regardless, if you run a balance or pay it in full, the credit card companies are still going to make money off you. And that's the reason why they're able to give out these huge sign-up bonuses or continued bonuses for using the card. So one of the ways that they do this is with annual fees, right? Even if you pay your credit card off every single month and you never pay interest on the balance, you're still going to have an annual fee for the card you're using. There's now obviously the APR or interest. And for those that have a balance, let's just say that you're in training, you're trying to make ends meet, you maybe had a little bit of a balance on your credit card. It wasn't crazy lifestyle inflation or spending ahead. Things happen, right? Training is about survival. And you are probably very familiar that your credit card, if you just pay the minimum or anywhere between the minimum and paying it off in full, there will be an interest charge to that. And that is a major source of revenue for the credit card companies because sadly, most people don't pay off their credit card every month. 
There are foreign transaction fees. So if you're traveling overseas, please watch out for those. Some credit cards will waive the fee, but most do not. So if you're picking a card or if you're going to travel internationally, make sure, double check, even call them up that there's no foreign transaction fees. Late fees are another way that they make money. And if you've ever made a late fee, you'll realize that it was a very costly mistake. Please don't ever try to make a late fee that really crushes your credit uh, as well. But that is a this is not a huge significant source, but is another source for credit card companies. But I would say one of the most significant ways that the credit card companies make money is in merchant fees. So they will make money off of you and your transactions, regardless if you pay off your balance or not. And that's one of the things that we as consumers likely don't see is it's because you're not paying for it. So every time you're swiping your card or Apple Pay or Google Pay or whatever it is, the merchant that you're buying the product service from has to pay the credit card company for the ability to just accept credit cards as a payment form. And usually those are two to 3% of the total transaction cost. So if you went and bought groceries and the bill was $100 and they used you know your Visa, I don't care what card, and you swipe your card, the grocery store is going to have to pay 2 to 3% just to accept that form of payment that they are paying right to Visa itself. And that's why you see some merchants that offer a cash price and a credit price with the cash price always being lower. They're passing on some of that savings to you. And most of the time we're like, no, I want the rewards, but you can do the math and say, well, hey, if my reward is 1% and they're giving me a 2% discount, pay with cash if you have cash. I'm notorious for never having cash on me. So that is usually not the best option for me, but also I don't really go off and spend a bunch of money, uh, especially now due to COVID in 2020. Let's just say I wasn't venturing out very far from the house. I was very fortunate and thankful that I didn't have to do that. But as we're spending money, it's one of those things just to be aware of. They can also make money off balance transfer fees. And so some of you have taken advantage of this. And sometimes it is actually worth it because there's two ways, there's two options, I should say, that you can do a balance transfer fee, which is essentially just transferring your balance from one credit card to another. There's 0% plus a small fee. So when you make the balance transfer and it says 0% interest, well, yes, technically it's 0% interest, but oh, by the way, we're gonna charge you 5% of your total balance to move it over and have 0% for the next 12 months. That's okay, right? But essentially is you just prepaid your interest at 5% and you're essentially taking out a quote unquote loan, you're putting the balance onto your credit card. It is at 0%, let's say for that 12 month teaser, 0% rate. And then it accrues basically a 20, 22, 27%, whatever the credit card company is charging as their APR. The other way that they can do it is to give you a very low teaser rate. Hey, we're going to charge 3% on all balance transfer fees, but we're not going to have any upfront initial fee. So when taking that 0% balance transfer option with a fee, you're likely saving some money if you're transferring debt that is at an actual much higher rate. But please be careful in doing this because I've seen it again way too many times that someone will transfer their credit card balance to another card that has 0% and then they go rack up another bunch of debt and get back in this kind of endless cycle. That also happens when you refinance to personal loans. We've seen it a lot where someone will go and they'll refinance through something like Credible. If you have credit card debt, it is a great option. Financialresidency.com slash Credible. They give fantastic rates. It'll allow you to 
take your credit card debt and get a much lower rate. But please don't do the mistake of then getting right back into credit card debt. That happens a bunch and now you're paying a boatload of debt and interest and it's ugly. So please don't do that. But that is another way that credit card companies can make money is off balance transfer fees because most people will say, oh, I'm at 0% and they kind of like ignore it and forget about it. And then the promotional period expires and uh-oh, we have a bunch of interest that's going to come due. The last way that I can think of that a credit card company would make some money is off cash advance fees. And think of this as you don't have a debit card. Otherwise, you would just go to the ATM and give money with your debit card out of your checking account. So you use your credit card to go pull money out of the ATM. That's a horrible thing. Please don't do that. That's called a cash advance. And most credit card companies will charge you a ridiculous fee for borrowing money from them on the credit just to get the cash. Really silly. So please, please don't do that at all. If you don't have the funds, don't spend whatever it is you're trying to buy. I should disclaimer that one. If if you get completely stuck and you need some cash, obviously that's going to happen, but that's going to be a price of admission, I guess, if you're looking at it that way. I'll be the first to admit here, I really like large sign-up bonuses. I really do. And I think I'll give you a personal example of when or I would actually want to sign up for a sign-up bonus versus most of the other crap offers that come through. So a really good sign-up bonus came when the Chase Sapphire card was like first released. And it had a $450 annual fee. You might be thinking like, holy crap, Ryan, you spent basically $450 to get a credit card. Yes, I did. And it's because the bonuses were amazing. At the time, it was 100,000 Chase points that you would receive after you spent your first $4,000. So we have no problem, unfortunately, spending $4,000 in a month. We don't spend a ton of money, but that isn't a huge sum of money now in training. That was like months of spending. But now we do that within a course of a month. And so we got the card, charged the 450. I then spent our money as we do our purchases. We hit up to the 4K limit. Chase gave me 100,000 Chase points. And if you redeem it through the portal, you actually were able to redeem it one and a half times the point value. So that actually 100,000 points was redeemed inside Chase's portal for the equivalent of having 150,000 points. The card also gave a $300 travel back credit on any travel category so that effectively, if I travel, which we were, this is not during COVID, this is many years ago, it effectively made my annual fee $150. So if I think about it, just I'll stop here for a second. If I paid $150 to acquire the card and they gave me 150,000 cheese points to travel, That's effectively, I paid $150 for 150,000 cheese points. That's a ridiculous value. And to illustrate the value, I used those points to book three round trip tickets for our annual family vacation. And that year it was Hawaii on Hawaiian Airlines through the Chase Travel Portal. Now, it took all the 100,000 points. At that point, it was 150,000. And I had to also spend $325. But that $325 was part of that was redeemed back for the travel credit. So if you're following along, I didn't spend that much money, right? I spent $150 essentially for the annual fee. And then I spent $325 in total for the the trip. So really I spent $475 for three round trip tickets from Southern California to Maui. What an amazing deal. That was right. All for signing up for the credit card 
and spending like we normally would. So do all cards have these type of perks? No, not even close. Don't even think that is absolutely the case. But I want to illustrate why I would sign up for a card. If I can turn around and take the family to Maui for under $500, just because I got a credit card and used it responsibly, yes, I will do that. But for most of the things that the bonuses that come through, I wouldn't. So that to me was free money. I'm going to spend some amount of time, obviously, that's going to be required in order to get the perk and to make sure that it's right for me and to even just the mental thought process of going through it. But there are a few reasons why this credit card game and rewards game is a bad idea, especially for doctors. And that's because most of the time you don't have time to try to figure out what's going on and where things are. Now, I will, I guess, disclaimer and disclosure this really quick is if this is what you enjoy to do and you love to do this and you love to research and analyze and you've got spreadsheets and you track things and you know when your annual fees are coming to all that stuff, great. This is not really for you. But for the majority of you listening that are like, oh, well, Jane signed up for this card and told me how cool this perk was. And then Bobby told me this one and that. And you're just going out and signing for cards. You are doing yourself a huge disservice. All right. So one of the negatives of the credit card points game is that it can have basically be a time management and accounting nightmare because you got to keep all these cards open or closing them on time so you don't get hit with more annual fees. You have to figure out which ones do have annual fees and which ones don't. Right? That starts to become a logistical nightmare if you have five, six, ten. I have friends that have 20 to 25 cards. And this isn't just one. I have multiple friends that do this. This is like their hobby and their passion. They research and play the game and move miles and all this. It's exhausting talking to them. It's super cool. The end result is I flew to China and back for $5. Awesome. But you spent 20 hours trying to figure that out. That's just not my thing. I wouldn't rather not do that. You also have to make sure that you have some type of transaction software that will allow you to recognize the charges that may or may not be occurring. Because as I talk on the show all the time, the more accounts you have, whether it's credit accounts, debit accounts, investment accounts, doesn't matter. The more accounts you have, the more you have to track, the more you have to remember, the more you have to organize. But also, what if you weren't charging on this card, it wasn't tracked anywhere, and someone stole your card? It's gonna be a lot harder for you to try to figure out, oh, crap, my credit card was stolen. That's not good. Hopefully, the company alerts you, but you got to be tracking these things. So the more cards you have, the more out of touch with those cards you become. On a more serious note, and I think I really should drive this and emphasize this point home, is that most people, most of you listening that are playing this credit card game, you're overspending when you're using your credit cards. The credit card bonus can act like this like carrot dangling in front of you, and you will likely manufacture spending in the very beginning in order to hit that bonus, right? So as I was giving you my example, I had to spend $4,000 in order to get the Chase credit card. Now, if we were in training and residency or fellowship, absolutely, we would not be hitting that in a month. It would take multiple months for us to have hit that. Our spending just wasn't high. We weren't earning that much money. We were poor residents and fellows. Like it was, it just wasn't happening. So we would have had to manufacture spending in order to qualify to hit that $4,000 to then get the 100,000 points. And most of you are going to manufacture spending, whether you know it consciously or subconsciously, you will manufacture spending and spend money in order to try to hit that amount, right? And that is something that you really shouldn't do. And then it probably will tempt you to buy things that you really don't need. Now, I have a friend who earned enough credit card points to fly her whole family around Europe for a month, again, pre-COVID. But 
one of the credit cards had given her a huge limit. It was like $25,000 limit. And so even though that all the flights were paid for and she had used all their points and accumulate all this great stuff, she still overspent while she was traveling because that new credit card that she took out, like Chase gives you huge limits. It gave her a huge limit and it made her feel like it was okay that she wouldn't be messing up her utilization and that she had basically enough money that was sitting there on the card that it wouldn't be an issue. Now, trust me, there's nothing worse than getting back from a cool vacation and feeling really guilty because you just overspent and having any credit card debt will erase all the fun of getting your free flights pretty much instantly. So be careful when you're signing up for cards and you're trying to play this game. Keep in mind that also having like a dozen or more cards complicates your finances, but it's going to turn into a really crazy hobby or almost like a second job. So most of you out there, you're billing for over a hundred bucks an hour chasing credit card rewards to make sure that you're spending the right categories and that you're using the right card. It's probably going to take you longer to figure all this out than what you normally bill out at. Again, like I said, if you nerd out on this stuff and this is your passion, I fully support it. I think that's amazing. Go for it. Figure out all the cool stuff. Send me emails with cool stuff because I don't do this anymore. It has to be a ridiculously good offer that one of my friends will ping me in order for me to even be slightly interested. But for the majority of you, it's going to cause more headaches and pain than just a few hours on an extra shift. So you probably are going to enjoy that even more than researching all this stuff. If you have a spouse that is super organized and this is their side hobby, cool, all means go out and have fun. But unless it's a killer deal like the one I got to basically take the family to Hawaii for 475 bucks, I don't even bother signing up. To me, my time is better spent sitting here creating content for you guys, helping our clients, our physician clients all across the country achieve financial freedom or just hanging out with my kids and my family. So before you jump in, if this isn't, again, a nerdy, crazy passion for you, please take a long look at what your goals are for your credit card needs. And if you want to maximize travel, apply for a well-reviewed travel credit card and put all your spending on it. If you want to maximize cash back, awesome. Do the same with a cash back credit card. Once you have your one or two main cards, just ignore everything else. Invest the time back into yourself or your family. Don't pay attention to all the temptations that are coming from these marketing geniuses behind credit card advertisements. Ultimately, when you're a physician, the easier your banking and your credit accounts are to handle, the more likely you're able to take control over your financial situation. You're going to feel more organized, more in control. You're going to have more confidence. But again, if you want to dabble in the credit card wards from time to time or plan one specific trip with it, again, back to my Hawaii trip, that's totally cool. As long as you understand the limits, you stick to your established budgets. Yep, I just said established budgets, so please do that. I'm going to keep hounding you guys all the time because I think it's so critical. And just don't spend more than you need to earn the reward. Credit cards are great tools for building your credit score and rewarded for buying the things you would already bought but they have to be used responsibly. The last thing you want to do is pay lots of interest and fees and have negative impacts on your credit score because you screwed up and misused your credit cards. So this is how credit cards work. This is how they make money. This is what I think about the rewards. I've had several questions come in about what do I have for credit cards, what I use and what would I recommend? This is generally what I would tell someone. So I thought, you know what, let me record this, let you guys inside the mind of Ryan and how I view credit cards. They can be a great asset and can actually make you money for the stuff you were already going to spend. 
But if you're not responsible or you get caught up in the game, it can ruin your credit and cost a small fortune. So I'll leave you with this. Remember what Uncle Ben said. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, that's right. I snuck in a Spider-Man quote. All right, now transitioning over to our curbside consult segment brought to you by our fee-only financial planning firm, Physician Wealth Services. If you're looking for a fiduciary to help you build and implement a true financial plan, reach out to us at physicianwealthservices.com. Now let's hear from AJ, who's in our community. I'm excited to answer AJ's question. Hi, my name is AJ. Myself and my wife are family medicine residents in Michigan. We each have individual Roth IRA accounts that I have about $7,000 I need to add between the two of them before April 15th. I was wondering if you thought it'd be a good idea to wait to add to those individual Roth IRA accounts given the recent market volatility. Thanks. Hey, AJ, thanks so much for calling in your question. I really, really appreciate it. And the way I interpret your question is really around market timing and trying to figure out when is the best time to place your hard-earned money to work. Now, I've got a few things on that, so I'm, I'm happy you actually called this in. One, you should always contribute the money in your IRA accounts when you have it. And that's because you only have until tax filing or the tax deadline to go back and contribute for any prior year contribution. Now, I want to clear that up for a second for everyone just to make sure we're on the same page. So if you still haven't made your contribution for 2020 in your traditional or Roth IRAs, regardless if you're doing a backdoor or not, you can still make your 2020 contribution up until tax day in April of 2021. Now you need to tell the custodian when you make that contribution in that this is actually for your 2020 tax year, not for 2021. And once it hits, it's going to be sitting there in cash. It doesn't get automatically invested. So trying to time the market based on your contribution is actually quite silly and just get the cash in as soon as you can and you can actually have it set aside and can afford it. Now, the second part to your question is, you know, if you really wanted to try and time the market, you could just leave the money that you just contributed in there into cash for as long as you want. Heck, you could literally move all your funds that are already inside your account, your IRAs, to cash by selling out the positions without triggering any tax issues because it's a tax deferred account. And you're not going to have any tax issues when you buy and sell into a Roth account. Now, we've had a few questions on tax loss harvesting that have come in through uh, the financialresidency.com slash question, which is how we received AJ's question. And what I'm saying here is that does not, when you look at tax loss harvesting, you do not need to harvest losses in your Roth or any other tax deferred account. That is really only for your taxable account. Now, I want to highlight a few things on trying to time the market. And there's really just a few things I want you to think on. And one is you're going to have to be right twice, right? Even though you're just trying to time the market, so to speak, to get into the market, the same thought model will exist throughout your entire portfolio. And if you think the market's going to go up or a market's going to go down, are you actually going to be trading your entire portfolio to cash if you think it's going to go down and then wait for a better entry point? And if you're like, no, that's silly, then why would you hold off getting your new money to place and just start working now for you versus holding it in cash? Because if you think the market's going to go down, well, 
put it, you know, have it all go to cash at that point. It makes no sense to only do a portion of your, your, your contributions to that and let everything else kind of ride. I'm not saying that's the right thing and definitely not investment advice, but it's the same concept. Either you believe, you know, the future and can accurately predict the, that when markets are going to go up, you're going to make money and you're going to put your money to work, or you're going to predict that the future markets are going to go down and you're accurately going to predict that and you're going to move everything to cash and it's going to save you from losses because you sat it in cash and you weren't invested the whole way down. Either way you look at this, you're going to have to be right twice, right? When you get out and when you get back in and to be honest, this seems very unlikely uh, and not very smart as a long-term strategy. And the second thing I kind of want to talk about here is how much of your overall portfolio is this? Now, $7,000 to me and likely to you and everyone else listening is a good amount of money. But over your investing career, honestly, it's just going to be a rounding error. So if you think, you know, even if you're an early career physician and saving this for maybe your first or your second time putting money to work, it's going to seem like a lot of money and you don't want to screw it up. But if we zoom out, you know, and look at, your entire investing career. If you're going to do things correctly and invest regularly, you're likely to invest well over seven figures of your hard-earned money or more like into those investment accounts, into various investment accounts. So how does the timing of $7,000 really influence the overall portfolio that you're going to build over your career? Let's assume that you're going to put $2 million away of your actual cash into various investment accounts over your entire career. You're, we're currently talking about $7,000 of that $2 million you, you could actually put together over your career would be 0.35% of the total amount of cash that you'll invest over your career. Even if the market collapsed 50% and you're buying in at 0.35 of your total lifetime contribution amount in the market, that's going to be so small in the grand scheme of things that again, it's just a rounding error. And you might be going, yeah, Ryan, well, 7k, that's, that is not a ton amount. And what, it, you know, what if it was, I sold my practice and I got $500,000, like then what? That's not just 0.35%. That's 25%, you know, using the same $2 million that you'd, you'd put in, in potential lifetime contributions. Well, now we can make the argument that it might be irresponsible to place it all at once. But actual data has shown to be the exact opposite, that even large one-time contributions when the funds are available is better for you than trying to wait and time the market. And this is where we talk about it's time in the market, not timing the market. Now, behaviorally, and what the math shows and history shows are, I think, really two different things. Behaviorally, I can totally understand that you would have a lot of anxiety if you were trying to place $500,000 all at once. And you might not care what the research has shown, right? So I think modifications to, to that would look at the concept of DCA or dollar cost averaging versus a lump sum in. Even if the lump sum ends up winning long-term and that's what the research would show, dollar cost averaging is a very viable strategy to help place a large amount of money in to the market. And again, though, that strategy isn't about timing the market. It's about making steady contributions over a set rate, over a set interval of time. Then it is more about timing whether the market is going to move up or it's going to move down. It's kind of like a 
tiny insurance policy on your money. You're getting into the market slowly to protect against the sudden and dramatic price increases or decreases that the market could experience when there's heightened volatility. But dollar cost averaging is about putting funds in, you know, putting funds in with a plan, contributing those those funds in with a plan and sticking to it regardless if the price is moving up or down. So hopefully that helps. Uh, if you want to be like AJ and get your question answered on air, go to financialresidency.com slash question. AJ, thank you so much again for calling this in. Hopefully it was helpful. Now, I also want to comment really quick that we are going to be starting up our YouTube channel pretty soon and getting some video content out. Now, I know a lot of you might just listen to podcasts and you don't watch videos or you don't read blogs, and that's fine, but I am going to be answering questions on YouTube as well, and it's going to be a little bit different than just calling in a question. So if you want to be featured on our YouTube channel that we're going to be launching, email me directly, ryan at financialresidency.com, and we can chat a little bit about that offline. Back with another financial malpractice segment we have on the famous Michael Relvis from MR Insurance. Michael, thanks for coming back on. You're a regular now on the Financial Residency Podcast. Thanks, bud. I got a fun one for you today. All right, let's hear it. So one of the hardest things about what we do is trying to relay the sense of urgency in, in securing insurance when it's needed, of course, but also without making somebody feel pressured or rushed. That's really not the goal. It's not about sealing a deal or anything like that. It's that over the years, we gain some experience, some of which are less favorable than others. And you really never know what could happen and what could change from one moment to the next. So a lot of times people will say, oh, you know, I'm thinking about doing this in a few months or in the spring and it's still the fall. No problem. We get it. This isn't something that has to be done immediately for a lot of people. But one of the things we always try to portray is that, hey, that's totally fine. We can wait. We just don't know what's going to happen. So we'll knock on wood, keep our fingers crossed. Hopefully everybody's still in equally good health and all will be fine. Now, we have some experiences, especially over the 15 or 16 years that I've been doing this, where timing just works out amazingly and just gosh awful bad luck, to be quite honest. So I had one earlier this year. We submitted an application for this individual I won't go into too much detail just for privacy, but he's in a surgical specialty. So a lot of procedures, hands are obviously very important. And we submitted an application. The application was approved. It took a little bit of time. We had to get some medical records, but the application was approved. In fact, the policy was actually issued. So I had sent this person the policy. All we needed was the signature pages, right? The policy terms were laid out. He just had to sign the final two or three signature pages and the policy would have been placed in force. Everything would have been done. So I remember it being, I think, a Friday morning, and I get a phone call, and I said, okay, that's weird. We just talked a couple of nights ago. He said he would send in the signature pages. What's going on? I was riding my bike to work yesterday, and I fell off, and I'm meeting with an orthopedic surgeon in a few hours because I injured my wrist real bad. Okay, well, we don't have signature pages yet. Most people don't realize this, but Anything that happens, even after you've completed an application, if it's prior to the policy being accepted and paid for, is fair game. The insurance companies can still look at that and use that against you. It's still going into their evaluation process. In fact, one of the final signature pages that you're requested or required to sign when accepting a policy is stating that nothing has changed since the time of application. Clearly, this person would no longer be able to sign that 
without having to disclose the information. So again, I won't go into too much detail, but basically what happened is we had to disclose it and the person was now offered a policy. The policy was changed. The insurance company said, okay, we need to reissue this. And they reissued it with an exclusion on the hand and wrist. What proceduralist wants an exclusion on their hand or wrist on their disability insurance? And we're talking days, you know, that's how important timing could be. Obviously it was a terrible situation, just such bad timing, but there was nothing we could do about it. It was too late. At that point, it was too late. So when people come to us and say, okay, I'm thinking about doing this in a few months and all that, we try to say, okay, that's fine. Just keep in mind, if anything changes in your health, that could impact this. And this is just a good example of how quickly that really can change. Yeah. Sometimes it's an insurance agents, they get a bad rap. There are bad actors in every industry. Insurance has no fault to the good guys, but there are some bad ones there and it becomes a sales pitch, right? Well, Hey, you know, time's going to pass and it feels like that. But in reality, I mean, this is a great example that, Hey, bad stuff can happen. You never know what's going to happen. So I would say I like this story. I don't. Individual ended up having those exclusions, but this is, I think, a really good lesson for everyone to take away. So I, I appreciate you coming back on the show, busting out some knowledge and some experience for us. For everyone that needs term or disability coverage, reach out to Michael at financialresidency.com slash insurance. Thanks, Mike, for coming back on. Thanks again, Ryan. All right, everyone. Well, I love those financial malpractice segments. Like I said, uh, it's becoming one of my quick favorites of stuff that we're doing at Financial Residency. And there's a lot of changes happening at Financial Residency that a lot of you still aren't aware of, but I'm so excited. 2021 is going to be a really cool year for Financial Residency in our community. We've got anything from new moderators that are happening in our Facebook group with Peggy Carter that's moderating. If you haven't joined our community, please do so, financialresidency.com slash community. We've got a new book coming out uh, called Hippocratic House, Do No Harm, uh, Buying Your First Physician Home. And that is actually going to be written by Doug Krause, who's in our community. is a mortgage lender married to a physician, and I will be writing the forward to that. That is finally going to be hitting shelves here in the next few months. We've been revamping a ton on the blog itself, uh, financialresidency.com. So just so many cool things, new YouTube channel coming. I'm just so excited to help you guys out with a ton of different ways that you will be able to take some of the data and some of the things that we're putting out and really help you guys get control over your finances. But before we go, I want to make sure that we talk about our sponsor one more time and that this podcast was sponsored by Contract Diagnostics. And this is a company that specializes in contract reviews. And specialization is something that I think we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family, you have contract needs, highly recommend that you give them a call. They're going to help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protect the assets that you covet most, your time and your family. So find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. I can't recommend John and his team enough. They are just such fantastic people. They do such a great job. I know they'll be able to help you out with your contract needs. All right, Wyatt, take it away, bud, and let's hear that ever important disclaimer. This is for entertainment purposes only. Do not take this as investment advice. My dad is only a fiduciary for his clients. Have a great day. Bye.
This podcast is for informational purposes only. The information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Financial residency is not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS, Guardian, or MR insurance consultants, and opinions stated are their own. Michael Ralvis is a registered representative and financial advisor and of other security products and advisory services through Park Avenue Securities, LLC. Member FINRA SIPC, OSJ, 9200 Corporate Boulevard, Suite 390, Rockfield, MD 20850. His phone is 240-683-9700. PAS is wholly owned subsidiary of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, New York, New York. MR Insurance Consultants is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. AR Insurance license number 8913976, 2021-114082, expires 0123.